Hello and welcome to Something Rhymes With Purple, the podcast about words, language and just general witterings, I would say, Giles, of a lovely nature because this is my favourite hour of the week when I get to look at you on my screen and hear your tales and share a few of my my own, share a few of the, the secret lives, as I call them, of all the words that we pass by in our language without ever giving them a second thought. How are you? Well, I'm very well. I'm drowning under post. Normally I'm drowning under emails, but today it's post. I'm involved in a whole range of different societies, fun societies. One of them is the Oscar Wilde Society, of which I'm president. And our one of our journals, Intentions, arrived today, full of interesting stuff if you want life on the wild side. But another publication arrived that is very relevant to what I think we're going to talk about today. I get a publication on a bi-monthly or maybe quarterly basis, called Yardstick. And Yardstick is a publication for people who haven't quite gone along with metrication. And I don't quite know why. I I appear to be one of the supporters of this. I've got no objection to metrication and the changes that came along, but I'm a little bit old school. So I'm a long list of people who apparently support this. And so I get Yardstick. And it celebrates, essentially, the days before metrication. Oh, okay. So it's not full of disgruntlement and and discombobulation asking for everything to be reversed. It's just sort of nostalgia. It's a bit of nostalgia, but it also... I think it celebrates the diversity of measurement. And it reminds us that we think in terms of imperial and metric, but in other parts of the world, they have other ways of doing things. And it's quite intriguing. Do you still talk in terms of yards? I'm afraid I do, because when I was running at school, I ran the 100 yards dash, the 220, the 440. That's how they were measured. And so in your yeah. head, if you were brought up like that, I was brought up in the 1950s, you reflect your generation. How about you, Susie? I am pretty metric, I would say, apart from when I talk about height and weight, and then I am still with feet and stones for sure. Isn't that true? Ba- babies um, are still born in pounds, aren't they? Yes, they are still. That, which is, which is amazing. Yeah, um, yeah it's strange. Even isn't really it? modern babies are, are born in pounds. They are. They absolutely are. And um, and so if somebody asks me how, how tall I am in metres, I have absolutely no idea. Um, but that is, as you say, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the various bits of vocabulary related to measurements. And after the break, in a little while, Giles, I'm going to test you with some of my favourite weird measurements. And boy, do they exist. Um, but we will get to those. Should we start with some of the standards first? Yes, we are going to run a furlong <laughs> uh, during this <laughs> podcast. Furlong is one of the oldest words and measurement, isn't it? I think you've told me that before. It is one of those, yes. It's a unit of length that is um, it's about 220 yards, if you want to keep it that way. And it comes from furrow long, really. It's a shortening of that. And that was the length of a furrow that oxen can plough before they're rested and then turned again. Oh, I love that. Okay. Yeah. Lovely. Okay, well, take us, shall we begin with, with length? Sure. And let's start sure. with the smallest length that I know, which would be an inch. An inch. That comes from the Latin uncia, which meant a twelfth part. And that also gave us ounce, incidentally, because, of course, there's 12 ounces um, as well in a... What, what is in it? 12 ounces 12, in a pound. In a pound, exactly. So it's all about division into 12, essentially. Do we know why it's 12 as opposed to 10? Because in some ways, the joke I always used to love saying was... If God had meant us to go metric, he would hardly have given our Lord 12 disciples. Why is it 12 in the old money and 10 in the new? Yes, that is a really, really good point. Well, I think the Romans originally divided their feet into 16 
parts, but then they later split it into 12 unci, um, as I say. And that is, I think, because without pocket calculators, it was much easier to divide by 12. That's one of the theories. But then you would say it's much easier for us, at least, to divide by 10, which is probably accounts for why we moved to that. But historically, the foot uh, particularly was part of numerous measurement systems. And the length of a foot, honestly, it varied from place to place. And it was either divided by 16 or by 12. And it is roughly the length of a human foot, isn't it, a foot? Exactly right. So, yes. And that's why it's so-called. That's why it's so-called. And, and speaking of foot as well, if you look at a mile, that comes from the Roman's word for a thousand, mile, uh, because a mile was approximately a thousand paces. So again, that pace would have been pretty subjective. You know, how many feet would a pace have been? So obviously they needed to have some kind of standard and some kind of regulation, but it, they would have literally had to stick their finger in the air and, and take a guess. Why do we measure horses? In hands. Well, again, I think it's probably just goes back to a fairly sort of easy and I don't mean primitive in terms of unsophisticated, but just, you know, before all the technology that we have available to us today, it was just a very, like foot, it was just a very easy way of calculating height. Okay, so we've got an inch, which is, we're now clear what that is. A foot is literally because of the length of a foot. Then we get up to a yard, three feet mm. in a yard. Is that anything to do with the yard you might walk around? No, that's different. So the yard is a unit of length. That actually goes back to an old English word meaning a twig or a stick. Oh. And again, it must have been probably about a three feet stick because the standard English unit of a yard, measurement of a yard is three feet. And that came about in the medieval period. So they, they must have had a stick of a particular length and thought we'll go with that, a yardstick indeed. And then the yard that is the American garden, really, that comes from another Old English word, meaning an enclosure as well as a home, actually. And it's related to garden uh, and also to orchard. And you'll find it in Russian as well. I think the Russian for, I'm not going to pronounce this properly, but the Russian for a town is yorod, I think. So in Britain, where our yard is usually just a piece of ground near a building, isn't it? Whereas in the US, it is the garden of a house. And then in Jamaican English, yard also means a house or a home. And so among some expat Jamaicans, a yard is Jamaica. And yard, as in garden, the Y is simply a substitute for the G. I mean, it's the same word. For the G in Old English, which could be soft. Yes, exactly. Uh -huh. The G in Old English could be soft, like, like Jermaine, as it were. As in the word we still pronounce with the spell with a G, Germaine. Some yes, or it could also be pronounced like a Y. So, I, do you know what? I have put myself onto a course of Anglo-Saxon pronunciation because after all this time, my old English pronunciation is not what it should be. So if you were to ask me even to to read a text, a, a lovely passage from Beowulf, for example, I, I wouldn't be able to do it in a way that I would be proud of. So, yeah, that's one of my next ventures. I'm longing for you to do this. One of the great pleasures of my childhood was at school, a teacher called Mr. Gardner, who read us Chaucer. Now, that's probably Middle English rather than Old English. Yes, it is. Yeah. Who read us Chaucer. And he obviously had been on this course. He knew how to pronounce it. And mm. when he read it, A, it was beautiful. It was just wonderful to hear him speaking it. But B, we really understood it when he did it. Um, so uh, that's one accent. 
or one way of pronouncing, and then even older than that is Old English. And that's what you're going to learn. And there are people who know about it who can teach you, are there? Yes. And I, I have to say, if anyone is interested, and this is for you as well, Giles, if you're interested in a book on Old English, there is a fantastic treasury of Old English words called The Word Horde, which was written by Hannah Vidin, so H-A-N-A and then V-I-D-E-E-N. And it has some absolutely glorious things in it. I, I really recommend it. It's a lovely, lovely read. And she does give guidance on pronunciation after the words as well. But I think I need something sort of more kind of sophisticated so that I can actually try and read everything because I go to the OED and I'm faced with a bit of old English and it takes me quite a long time to decipher it. And that shouldn't be the case given what I do. So um, one of my failings that I'm determined to to improve upon. Don't regard it as a failing. It's just a gap. A gap. Uh, it's not a failing. It's and a an gap. An opportunity, as they say. An opportunity, exactly. So we've done inch. We've gone from inch to foot to yard. Yeah. Uh, where do we next go before we get to mile? I mean, furlong is more than how many yards in a furlong? I don't know how many yards. It's, oh, 220. Sorry, I did know. It's yes. all, Yeah, 40 poles as well. It was uh, defined. Oh, Lord. As. A pole, I suppose, is like a foot. I mean, it is literally the length of a Or like the word for... Which was which one did you say was like a stick? I Another think it would be like 50 yards a pole. Uh, so the stick is the yard. So that goes yep. back to the old English um, yeah, yard. Uh, twig stick or, or rod. This this is why you've got to concentrate with this podcast. <laughs> the yard, the the yard that is the measurement comes from yard meaning a stick. Yes. Uh, whereas uh, the yard, as in your garden or the backyard or a prison yard, is a version of garden. When the G and the was said softly like yeah. Yes. I've got it. Yes. Good. Okay, so furlong is 220, and still furlong is used really in relation to horse races. Horse races. I think exclusively now, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, unless they use it in um, in farming. Maybe the purple people can tell us. Very good. Well, we've that's the long and the short of it. <laughs> that's the length of it. Um, well, let's do volume now. What do we begin with? Well, we've got the ounces in the fluid ounce, so we've covered that. Um, we have a gill. Do you know about a gill? <sighs> I sort of know about a gill because I feel sometimes when you go into a pub and ask for something, you see them producing little things from the back counter and pouring into it and then into little vessels. And I think I've seen on the side of those vessels, they are a gill or something. Have I got that right? Have yeah, I I, that? I, well, possibly. I, this was new to me, actually. So I learned this one from Harriet, our producer. Um, it's a unit of liquid measure and it's a quarter of a pint. Ah. And it goes back to, um, again, to Latin, late Latin, this one. And it goes back to um, gilo, which meant a water pot. So it was actually used for water and for hydro pots, which I like to call water drinkers or drinkers of soft beverages. And then it was transferred over to a measure or container for wine. So me not drinking alcohol, I'm a hydro pot. I like that. So we've had the fluid ounce. We've now had the gill, pronounced gill, not jill. I think it's a gill. Then we have a pint. Now, pint, we don't know where that comes from. Its origin is entirely unknown. You're joking. No. Nobody knows the root of the word pint. No. Pick up a pint. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Uh, if in, in the Oxford English Dictionary, which is our primary source, what does it say? It says origin unknown. I mean, how far back does it go? It says, old, we took it from Old French, so we can take it back to probably the Normans, but then it's lost. We have absolutely no idea. 
And is it possible that one day it will be found? I mean, is... Oh, yeah. So it's like being on the beach with your machine trying to pick up an old coin. You can actually be out there looking for the source of a word and suddenly you can come across an old manuscript or something that gives you the source. The archaeology will uh, go on for sure. So I'm just looking down here um, to say it may come from a Latin, a similar word in Latin, and... But it says mm, they are, the form of the French word is unexpected, so they can't quite work it out. Possible that the post-classical Latin word was borrowed from a vernacular language. I, basically, they don't know. So, uh, yeah, lots of suggestions, but the jury is out. Pick up a pint. <laughs> uh, well, there we are. What about the surname Pinter? Do you think it's connected with it? Somebody who delivered pints was a pinter. Yeah, pinter. pinter. I think you uh, might absolutely be right with that. Yeah. Harold Pinter, of course, great British playwright, Nobel laureate, uh, not so well known was Harold Punter, author of The Misprint, another oh. very successful play. That's okay. my joke. Okay, on we go. <laughs> Pint, you get a court I'm next. I'm so gullible. A court <laughs> is a unit of capacity. That's a quarter of a gallon. That comes from old French and then ultimately again Latin. Quarter, pars, the fourth part. Oh, so it's as simple as that. Yes. Court is short for a quarter. Yes. And how many pints in a court? Oh, my goodness. A quarter of a gallon. So how many pints, how many pints in a gallon? In a gallon? We're mixing it up here now, aren't we? I'm going to have to look this up. No, because it's the same. These are all what we would call imperial measures, so-called because they were the measures that were agreed to be used across, um, I assume, the British Empire in its heyday. That's why they're called imperial measures. That's absolutely right, yes. But, okay, so there's eight pints in a gallon. Good. Yeah. I didn't know that. Eight pints in a gallon, and a quart is a quarter of a gallon, so there are two pints in a court. In a court. Yay! And a gallon itself is from, guess what, the French, gallon, uh, and then from Latin, uh, from a Latin word meaning a pail or a sort of bucket, and that became a liquid measure. <laughs> you can tell. It's a bit of a stab in the dark with what they used for measurements, but yeah, I love that. So it's like a, a, a pail. A gallon mm. is a like a sort of... Is it a word like ballon, like balloon? Um, I'm not sure. G-A-L-L-O-N. What I do know is that I have to race through the mass measurements because these are my absolute favourites and it's almost time for the break. But can I quickly run through those? Okay. Okay. So the pound goes back, as I think you probably know, to the Latin libra pondo, and that was a Roman weight equivalent to 12 ounces. And Which is why the pound sign is that L with the two lines across it. Exactly right. And libra, of course, meant scales or balance, and pondo was by word, uh, by weight rather. And of course, we have the star sign libra, which is a pair of scales. And then the money sense of a pound came about because the first pound in a currency sense with literally a pound weight of silver. So we talked about ounces, that's a 12th part. And in imperial measurement, it would have been the 12th part of a pound. And stone, I just love this. (laughs) This was the imperial unit of weight. Now this is recorded since the 14th century and it's now 14 pounds. But once upon a time, it was all over the shop because it would have been just the weight of a particular rock used as a local measure. So each village might have had a different rock. Isn't that great? That's fantastic. In the old days, villages also had different times during the day, didn't they? Because there wasn't one unified. It's extraordinary. So the stone in one town would be different from another town because (laughs) they were using a different stone as the core measurement. So if you want to. So a stone is called a stone. Yes. Well, look, you've rattled us through that in order to get to the break. In fact, 
listeners may be intrigued to know that they are good, actually. We can have our break now, and we like a break, and I like the ads. But you could get all episodes ad-free if you wanted to um, sort of become one of our subscribers. And you get discount codes as well on the merchandise ranges and access to the bonus episodes. Uh, We've got quite a fun one on um, the nation's favourite bad language. And we're doing a more serious one, as you know, on our best-loved poets. Anyway, And I would just uh, add, Giles, that for those who can't afford it, and I know um, times are particularly tough ooh. at the moment, you can still get all the podcasts free. So I yeah. I've, we had a few people saying, I can't, you know, I can't listen anymore because I can't <gasps> subscribe. Oh, no. Actually, you really, really can. This is just an extra should you want it. This is a bonus. This is just an extra for one eighty nine a month. But the, the 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 great original is there. All the backlist, all the future uh, podcasts, freely available. Yes, freely, freely, freely available. But if you want to find out more about this uh, Purple Club, and you can even start a seven day free trial, just follow the links uh, in the program description. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Time to take a break. And then we're going into the weird as well as the wonderful units of measurement. I've got some surprises ahead, apparently. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories. And we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to Something Rise with Purple, where I am leading Giles through the um, slightly, well, it's not heavy, nor is it weighty. It's actually quite light subject of measurements. Um, I think the mathematical side of it is probably quite complicated, but we are gliding over the linguistic side of things. And Giles, I promised you that I would come up with some of the weirder measurements that have actually been formally accepted, but that you may not ever have heard of. I'm sure I won't have heard of any of them. Because when it comes to things to do with weights and measures, science, mathematics, statistics, I look the other way. So surprise me. Okay. Have you heard of a beard second? A beard second? No, I have not. All right. Can you guess what it might be? A beard second. Well, is it when you... I've had one over the eight. You've drunk too much, and there's a. You've made it. The foam from the beer has created a second beard around <laughs> your original beard. I love that idea. Nothing to do with measurements, but I kind of unless unless, as you say, it's the level of being drunk. No, it's actually the approximate length a man's beard grows in one second, which is five nanometers. How amazing! It's so niche. It's just fantastic. Uh, it's extraordinary. What? Uh, just forgive me. I know what a second is. What's a nanosecond? So nano means tiny. You know when we talk about nanoparticles, they are absolutely tiny. And the official definition um, is: I'm going to look it up for you because I'm not a physicist. Um, it is okay. The prefix nano means one billionth, and therefore one nanometer is one billionth of a meter. Mm. Um, and so one single sheet of paper is about 100,000 nanometers thick. 
That's incredible. So that's how tiny, um, there's the tiniest amount of growth in one second of your beard if you had one. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I, I do shave every day, so there's something growing every night. Well, but, of course. Okay. But only on my chin. Why isn't it growing on the top of my head? Anyway, that's by the way. It's very old, isn't it? Okay, mm. so um, a smoot is another one that I love. So a, a smoot is, I think, five foot seven, roughly, okay? And this goes back to the chairman of the American National Standards Institute, who is called Oliver Smoot. And in 1958, he attempted to gauge the length of the entire Harvard Bridge using his body as the measuring tape. Oh, hilarious. <laughs> How tall are you, by the way? I Well, when I Have stand up, okay. when I've, A, I've shrunk. I was 5 foot 11 at yes. my height, at the height of it. Yeah. Uh, but you can tell, what's rather interesting is that we have at home on a wall the measurements of ourselves and all the children yeah. over the years. My parents, did your parents do this yes, at home? Yes, absolutely. Um, and so uh, you've seen me, as it were, at my height. And it's five foot eleven. As the years go by, I, I was going up one way, and I'm now coming down the other way. <laughs> it's rather sad. When I stand up, if yeah. I stand up properly, which I don't do as well as I should, I'm five foot ten and a half. What, what height are you? Well, I started out at five seven and a half, but I too have lost half an inch, um, which is a bit depressing. And and I see it daily in the increases, just overnight increases i mean forget the beard seconds of my my two girls because they have far far outreached me now so yes i'm going to become one of those grannies that just looks up to their grandchildren i can tell so that's a smoot now um there is also and i love this something called a warhol now this comes from Andy Warhol's famous, famous statement that everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes, okay? So a Warhol is 15 minutes of fame and it can be used in multiples. So if you have one kilo Warhol, you are famous for 15,000 minutes. That's <laughs> 10.42 days. A mega Warhol means famous for 15 million minutes or 28 and a half years. And you've definitely had more than a mega Warhol. I think that's completely brilliant. So do I. I love that one. Now, some that you will have heard of, um, but they are just quite strange. But I thought I would mention them anyway. It's the Baker's Dozen. Yes, I've heard of that. And that, that's, that's 13, isn't it? Why was it introduced? What is the meaning of it? Various suggestions for this. So some people think it was just n- not to shortchange the customer because um, you could actually be liable for severe punishment in uh, medieval times if you were to do so. And some people say, oh, this law that existed then in the 13th century meant that the authorities could take off, cut off a hand by axe and other dire consequences. So you could say, understandably, English bakers erred on the side of caution and then gave 13 loaves or 13 rolls or whatever. Others just say it was for tax reasons that actually you, I I don't quite understand the financial implications of it, but again, it would be to do with possibly shortchanging your customer and then having tax liability as a result. But yeah, isn't it incredible that we still talk about a baker's dozen, and of course, dozen goes back to the French douze, meaning 12, but the baker's dozen is 13. Another measurement thing that I always get wrong, speaking of dozens, and this you can see changing in real time if you look at the dictionary databases that I study, is talking 10 to the dozen, or I say, yeah, I say 10 to the dozen, which doesn't make sense at all, but actually it's 19 to the dozen, isn't it? Because you're talking so quickly that for every 12 words that you would normally speak, you're actually speaking 19, but it's moving towards 10 to the dozen, which makes zero sense. 
It makes zero sense at all. It's like cheap at half the price. I'm intrigued that though we've gone, because of this dozen and ten thing, though we've gone metric, eggs are still being sold in dozens, dozens aren't they? They are. Well, we don't Actually, really have a word for 12, do we? A collection of 12. Except a dozen. I know, it's interesting, isn't it? Another one is a hundred. Now, a hundred was, in England, it was administrative area, really. It was larger than a village and smaller than a county. And it was around a hundred hides in size. Now, hide was another one that you will find. And a hide, again, nothing to do with the fur of an animal or the skin of an animal, which you might suspect. And simply another old English term, which was used as a unit of measurement. And I'm just trying to see exactly what it was. Between 60 and 120 acres, but it was essentially the amount that would support a family and its dependents. And I think it probably goes back to a Germanic word meaning household member. So it was enough to feed a family, but that differed from county to county. You're brilliant. I've got nuts and more for you. Yes, far away. I'm loving uh, it. A neckum, sinkum and swankum. <laughs> neckum, sinkum and swankum. Yes. These are a form of measurements. Well, you're necking it. You're thinking yes. it. I mean, this is, you're going to end up one over the eight. You can explain that in a moment. You neck them, pouring it down your neck. You sink them, it sinks into your stomach. Yeah. And then swank them. What does that mean? You, you become boastful and start <laughs> swanking, do you? What, what, no, it's, it's interesting. So swank is a dialect word um, that you'll find in um, a dictionary of 1721. I think that's the first reference we have. And it's defined as the remainder of liquor at the bottom of a tankard pot or cup, which is just sufficient for one draft, which does not accounted good manners to divide with the left-hand man and according to the quantity is called either a large or little swank in other words you can have it yourself because it's too little to be offered to your companion and that might be a little bit insulting so the neckum sinkum and swankum were the three drafts into which a jug of beer was divided gosh well this is very intriguing yes <laughs> interesting clearly drinking has been part and parcel of our culture uh, for a long time. Yes, and you mentioned one over the eight. That yeah. was because it was once said that an average man, and it was a man, should be able to consume eight pints of ale before appearing drunk. So if you were one over it, wow. you were probably, you know, pretty drunk. And it must have been small beer rather than strong beer because that's a gallon of ale. Apparently. Of course. A gallon of ale, absolutely. Yeah. And you occasionally go into pubs and you see they've got a glass that is, as it were, the shape yeah. And it's a long glass and people do actually order a gallon of ale and attempt to drink it. It can't be good for your health, can no. it, to drink that I much all those that quickly? student initiation rites and things, yeah, managed to swerve those, I have to say. I did too. I don't, I don't think they had, well, they avoided me. They knew I wasn't my sort of thing. <laughs> a friend of mine, you know, didn't, didn't invite me to it. He said, um, I'm having a stag do, but I'm not asking you. I don't think you'd enjoy it very much, but I want you to know I'm still a friend. And oh. I would invite you, but I don't think it's your thing. And he was right. You're totally I right. Think... I have to say, I have avoided hen nights. I just know that I would be rubbish. I love, yeah, I'd be very happily get one over the eight with just a small group of friends. I know really well, just around a table, but the thought of going out in pink suspenders and I balloon know. bras and chaining them to a lamppost is just, yeah. I don't think that's very surprising. I don't think any purple person would be surprised that we say that. But I tell get, you who, Oh, forgive me. One more question. St you, you mentioned stone. Okay, mm. the weight stoned. 
getting stoned. We're now talking about alcohol. Is that oh, yeah. anything to do with the, with, the, with the weight, the stone? Oh, yeah, not no? alcohol. This is kind of drugs, isn't it? Oh, oh, I thought you got stoned <laughs> and alcohol as well. You don't? This no. Shows, I mean, turn off now if you don't want to listen to an old fuddy-duddy. I have never, t- well, I've taken the odd aspirin, but I've never taken <laughs> drugs of any kind. So I wouldn't know that. I thought you could be stoned on alcohol. No, you just get drunk on alcohol, do you? you yeah. stoned on drugs. And is that to do with the weight you've taken so much? I think it's just that you're so kind of knocked out. It's almost like you've been sort of knocked down by a stone. That's my guess. We've had some lovely letters in from our purple people. And I think we also have the voice notes, which I'm really enjoying. It's so lovely to actually hear their voices. Um, it's interesting you call them voice notes. I mean, mm. that's a nice thing to describe. I mean, they're just sort of voice messages, aren't they? Why, are they, why do we call them notes? Same thing. I'm not Same sure thing, really. Just Ma- mod- yeah. a modern phrase. Yeah, okay. the voice message, given that it's being sent to someone else, might be a nice thing. But anyway, whatever it is, we're really happy to hear from you. And our first one came from Gemma Thompson. Dear Giles and Susie, thank you so much for your wonderful podcast. I was wondering if you could shed some light on something that has always puzzled me. Why, when we pay homage to something, do we pronounce it homage, but pronounce it differently when we say that something is an homage? Are there any other words that are used differently in this manner? Warmest wishes and many thanks, Gemma Thompson. So that's interesting, isn't it? You pay homage to something, but you might uh, regard us or tribute an homage. I think that is intriguing. What do you think about that? It is. And it set me thinking about words that are pronounced differently according to their part of speech. And I would love to hear from the purple people because I was just thinking, gosh, I can't I can't think of many actually that would fit that bill. My instinct is that if you pay homage to someone, it's part of a fixed phrase that we have known for a very long time. And it's kind of got that linguistic apparatus that makes it okay. But when you say, oh, it was an homage to someone. I think we've become just a little bit perhaps more pretentious, possibly, but in a in a fashionable way, and decided to pronounce it the French way. And of course, as you know, Giles, sound um, just has kind of, pronunciation just took off a long time ago, divorced itself from spelling and is, has got a mind of its own, really. So we love to muck around with the sound. I mean, homage itself, if you remember, goes back to the Latin homo and homin, uh, man, because the original use of it was to um, describe the ceremony by which a vassal declared himself to be his lord's man. In other words, the servant of his lord. But I suspect that's why we go for the French, is that the context in which we use homage, <laughs> homage, uh, now is, is less to do with paying homage as, as the fixed phrase and much more to do with just, oh yes, we, we did it as an homage or an homage or an, a homage. I think homage just sounds a bit in for a dig. And we always try, it's the same process at work when we say, oh, he gave the invitation to Giles and myself. And we put myself mm. in there because me just sounds a little bit too colloquial and it doesn't sound correct, but actually it is. Or, you know, it's just um, trying him, to add him and me, to it. for example. Yes. But it's that kind of thing where I think we, we kind of slightly overcorrect ourselves. I think that's probably what's happening there. Mm. What has Graham Manton written to us about? Hi, Susie. I have a question for you. Is there any relationship between sledge being a means of transport on snow and to sledge being to verbally abuse an opponent in sport with the intention of putting them off? Many thanks, Graham. Thank you to Graham for that one. Um, Well, the sledge that we use on snow and ice, that came about in the 1500s and that comes from Dutch and it's related to sled and sleigh and slide and slither. Uh, So lots and lots of, of kind of relatives in the same family. 
But the sort of use in cricketing, and it is essentially cricketing, isn't it, that we talk about sledging an opponent, that came about in the 1970s. And it was actually Australian cricketers who started to use the word for making really needling remarks to try and put um, their opponents off and break their concentration. And the idea behind this is not the sledge that you use on snow, but the sledge hammer and the kind of lack of subtlety involved in using it. In other words, it's a really kind of blunt instrument, but it, I mean, it works for sure, but it's heavy handed and it's not particularly, as I say, nuanced or sophisticated, but that's where that one comes from. Nothing to do with the snow sled or Very sledge. good. Yeah. That's very good. So we've got a snow sled and we've got a sledgehammer. Completely different. Yeah. And we've now got three special words. We do. Susie's trio. What have you got? Um, I just came across this one the other day. I'm often asked if there's a collective noun for nieces and nephews, just as we have siblings. And you will have heard this, Charles. Nibblings. 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 I love it. Nibblings. Definitely gaining traction. But I came across a twindle. And a twindle oh. was old dialect for a twin sibling. Oh. I just really like that, me and my twindle. Well, um, but you couldn't be anything else. But if you if you're twins, you will be siblings, won't you? By definition, so you don't. I mean, but you're, a twin is a twindle. I mean, a, a twin is a sibling. Doesn't you don't need the word? It's okay. a redundant I'll word. Before for a you... twin, but if you are talking about your sibling, so it's not. It wouldn't be used by anyone other than a person who is a twin. Fine. You'd say, oh, I was saying to my twindle. Yes. That's quite sweet. Exactly. Yeah. Or okay. my twindles, if there's more than one of you. Um, oh, but then you'd be, be triplets. You'd be triplets and it would be a, yes, I don't know what that would be. Uh, no. um, I'm not sure about this word. I'm, I mean, I'll let it pass because it's you. But um, I just thought it sounded no. cute. It does sound cute. Sounding cute. Just very obvious. You can see exactly where this one is coming from, but it's just quite pithy. If you've been given a bad piece of advice or information, you can just say, I have been miscounseled. Or miscounsel itself is a really bad piece of advice. Mm. Uh, I just quite like that one. No, but I think that's rather good. I have been miscounseled on this. Yes. Very good. Yes. And the last one, 19th century, um, champagne shoulders. Came across this one the other day. And that's if you've got really sloping shoulders, because then you look like a champagne bottle. <laughs> oh, I like that. He's it's got very, champagne No one's ever going to use this, but I just quite like it. I think it's wonderful. People should. People should be talking like you, Susie. <laughs> They, you're brilliant. Oh, I've thank got a, you. I've, got a poem? I've got an, well, I've, I'm rather pleased with the poem I've chosen this week. It's one of my favourites, but I don't think I've done it before. Uh, some of the best bit of advice I was ever given when I had some awful problem, somebody said to me, you know, the best way out is through the door. You know, the, obviously, the, the obvious solution, you, you're yes. trying to get out of the window, climb yes. to the roof, you know. Actually, the best way out is through the door. And, and that's why I think this poem, which is by a, a Czech scientist, I think he was an immunologist. Anyway, he's also a poet, Miroslav Holub. I think it's one of the most useful and inspiring that I know. It's simply called The Door by Miroslav Holub. Born 1923, died 1998. Go and open the door. Maybe outside there's a tree, or a wood, a garden, or a magic city. Go and open the door. Maybe a dog's rummaging. Maybe you'll see a face, or an eye, or the picture of a picture. Go and open the door. If there's a fog, it will clear. Go and open the door. Even if there's only the darkness ticking, even if there's only the hollow wind, even if nothing is there, go and open the door. At least... There'll be a draft. Oh, that's excellent. Always, Good poem, isn't it? It is. I yeah. always learn stuff. And I, I just love the, the kind of cadence of that one. Um, I learned so much stuff being with you, Susie Dent. You oh, are well, amazing. Like 
And I, I, mean, I hope the people who subscribe to Yardstick will have heard you and learnt things that they didn't know. Oh, well, yeah, it's been a fun one. Don't forget the beard second. Um, and thank you to everyone who's listened today. I hope that you've enjoyed it as much as Giles and I have. And do please keep getting in touch. Purple at somethingelse.com. Something Rhymes with Purple is... What is it, Giles? Well, it's a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, Jay Beely, and the man who really does have champagne shoulders oh yes gully but not teddy i have to say we have to thank teddy as well he's oh, he's been Ted. he's been on hand today because gully quite frankly has just clearly had some miscounsel and just taken off oh can can we do an episode all about teddies and teddy bears oh, and yes, toys have, we, have we done a toy episode oh i would love that rocking horses no. oh, oh we have loads to say okay let's do that okay we'll play around with toys quite soon <laughs>